0: That's cbp.gov slash careers slash usbp. This is the American Veteran Show.
1: Proud to finally say these
2: two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews, highlighting their
3: commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And The other 99% of us, we owe them.
2: Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs.
4: Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Stefan Tubbs, producer Michael Arpaio. It is a pleasure to have you as we wrap up the month of July. Where has the summer gone? Just this past week, we've got a lot of interesting audio for you straight ahead. We've got not only the 75th anniversary of President Harry S. Truman desegregating the United States military. We've got leading off of the program... UAPs slash UFOs, unidentified aerial phenomena, or I prefer from my generation, unidentified flying objects. And there were military connections, most certainly with some testimony in front of members of Congress just several days ago. We'll talk about that and lead off the program straight ahead with it. We couldn't do programs like this without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, Law BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. Their number, 303-999-9999. On Capitol Hill, UFOs and a hearing.
5: My name is Ryan Fobbs Graves, and I'm a former F-18 pilot with a decade of service in the U.S. Navy, including two deployments in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Inherent Resolve. I have experienced advanced UAP firsthand, and I'm here to voice the concerns of more than 30 commercial aircrew and military veterans who have confided their similar encounters with me. Today, I would like to highlight three critical issues that demand our action. As we convene here, UAP are in our airspace, but they are grossly underreported. These sightings are not rare or isolated. They are routine. Military aircrew and commercial pilots, trained observers whose lives depend on accurate identification, are frequently witnessing these phenomena. The stigma attached to UAP is real and powerful and challenges national security. It silences commercial pilots who fear professional repercussions, discourages witnesses, and is only compounded by recent government claims questioning the credibility of eyewitness testimony. Parts of our government are aware of more about UAP than they let on, but excessive classification practices keep crucial information hidden. Since 2021, all UAP videos are classified as secret or above. This level of secrecy not only impedes our understanding, but fuels speculation and mistrust. In 2014, I was an F-18 Foxtrot pilot in the Navy Fighter Attack Squadron 11, the Red Rippers, and I was stationed at NAS Oceana in Virginia Beach. After upgrades were made to our jet's radar systems, we began detecting unknown objects operating in our airspace. At first, we assumed they were radar errors. But soon, we began to correlate the radar tracks with multiple onboard sensors, including infrared systems, eventually through visual ID. During a training mission in warning area Whiskey 72, 10 miles off the coast of Virginia Beach, two F-18 Super Hornets were split by a UAP. The object, described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere, came within 50 feet of the lead aircraft and was estimated to be 5 to 15 feet in diameter. The mission commander terminated the flight immediately and returned to base. Our squadron submitted a safety report, but there was no official acknowledgement of the incident and no further mechanism to report the sightings. Soon, these encounters became so frequent that aircrew would discuss the risk of UAP as part of their regular pre-flight briefs. In closing, I recognize the skepticism surrounding this topic. If everyone could see the sensor and video data I witnessed, our national conversation would change. I urge us to put aside stigma and address the security and safety issue this topic represents. If UAP are foreign drones, it is an urgent national security problem. If it is something else, it is an issue for science. In either case, unidentified objects are concerned for flight safety. The American people deserve to know what is happening in our skies. It is long overdue.
6: Following concerning reports from multiple esteemed and credentialed current and former military and intelligence community individuals that the U.S. government is operating with secrecy above congressional oversight, Uh, with regards to UAPs. My testimony is based on information I've been given by individuals with a long-standing track record of legitimacy and service to this country, many of whom also have shared compelling evidence in the form of photography, official documentation, and classified oral testimony to myself and many my various colleagues. In the U.S. Air Force, in my National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, Reservist Capacity, I was a member of the UAP Task Force from 2019 to 2021. I served at the NRO Operations Center on the Director's Briefing Staff, which included the coordination of the Presidential Daily Brief and supporting variety of contingency operations, which I was the Reserve Intelligence Division Chief Backup. In 2019, the UAP Task Force Director asked me to identify all special access programs and controlled access programs, also known as SAPS and CAPS, uh, we needed to satisfy our congressionally mandated mission and we were direct report at the time to the Dep-Sec Def. At the time, due to my extensive executive level intelligence support duties, I was cleared to literally all uh, relevant departments and in a position of extreme trust, both in my military and civilian capacities. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade uh, UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program, uh, to which I was denied access to those additional read-ons when I uh, requested it. I made the decision based on the data I collected to report this information to my superior, superiors and multiple inspectors general, and in effect becoming a whistleblower. As you know, I've suffered retaliation for my decision, uh, but I am hopeful that my actions will ultimately lead uh, to a positive outcome of uh, increased transparency.
7: I want to first thank you for the invitation to speak to the committee on the UAP topic that has been in the news for the past six years and seems to be continuing to gain momentum. As you know, my name is David Fravor. I'm a retired commander in the United States Navy. In 2004, I was a commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 41, the world-famous Black Aces. We were attached to Carrier Air Wing 11 stationed on board the USS Nimitz and had begun a two month workup cycle off the coast of California. On this day, we were scheduled for a 2v2 air to air training with the USS Princeton as our control. When we launched off Nimitz, my wingman was joining up. We were told that the training was going to be suspended and we were going to proceed with real world tasking. As we proceeded to the west, the air controller was counting down the range to an object that we were going to, and we were unaware of what we were going to see when we arrived. There, uh, the controller told us that these objects uh, had been observed for over two weeks, coming down from over 80,000 feet, rapidly descending to 20,000 feet, hanging out for hours, and then going straight back up. For those who don't realize, above 80,000 feet is space. We arrived at the location at approximately 20,000 feet, and the controller called merge plot, which means that our radar blip was now in the same resolution cell as the contact. As we looked around, we noticed that we saw some white water off our right side. It's important to note that the weather on this day was as close to perfect as you could ask for off the coast of San Diego. Clear skies, light winds, calm seas, no white caps from waves, so the white water stood out in a large blue ocean. All four of us, because we were an F-18F, so we had pilots and WIZO in the backseat, looked down a small, saw a white tic-tac object with a longitudinal axis pointing north-south and moving very abruptly over the water like a ping-pong ball. There were no rotors, no rotor wash, or any sign of visible control surfaces like wings. As we started clockwise towards the object, my wizard and I decided to go down and take a closer look with the other aircraft staying in high cover to observe both us and the tic-tac. We proceeded around the circle about 90 degrees from the start of our descent, and the object, ob- object suddenly shifted its longitudinal axis, aligned it with my aircraft, and began to climb. We continued down another 270 degrees, nose low, where the tic-tac, or we considered 270 degrees toward the, and we went nose low to where the tic-tac would have been. Our altitude at this point was about 15,000 feet, and the tic-tac was about 12,000. As we pulled nose onto the object, within about a half mile of it, it rapidly accelerated in front of us and disappeared. Our wingmen, roughly 8,000 feet above us, lost contact also. We immediately turned back to see where the white water was at, and it was gone also. So as we started to turn back towards the east, the controller came up and said, Sir, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is at your cat point, roughly 60 miles away in less than a minute. You can calculate the speed. We returned to Nimitz, we were taking off our gear, we were talking to one of my crews that was getting ready to launch, we mentioned it to them, and they went out and luckily got the video that you see, that 90-second video. What you don't see is the radar tape that was never released, and we don't know where it's at, of the active jamming that the object put on an APG-73 radar, and I can get into modes later if you're interested.
4: testimony on UAPs or UFOs just last week on Capitol Hill by three United States veterans and certainly with government service. Graves, Grush, and Fravor. We'll get into the Q&A coming up in our next segment. Stay with us. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stefan Tubbs. Welcome back as we continue on this Sunday. This is the American Veteran Show, and thank you so much for all the time that you give us. Of course, we are in this for the long haul, and we have been doing it season after season for our veterans, veterans, and active-duty families. We appreciate your time. We continue with just several days ago a recap of the testimony. Some would say, yeah, they're, they're kooky. They're crazy. Others would say How how is anybody not believing uh, what these three men who testified in front of a subcommittee last week? How can you not believe these guys? Here's part of the Q&A on UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena or UFOs.
8: So my first question, I have several questions and I'll if we can just be quick on these first two, I'm going to ask each of you the same question, um, and then I'll get to each of you individually. Uh, The first one, when you reported your experiences with a UAP, did any of you face any repercussions with your superiors, yes or no?
6: No. No. I've actually never seen anything personally, believe it or not.
8: (laughs) All right. Um, And then do do you believe there's an active disinformation campaign within our government to deny existence of UAPs, yes or no? I don't have an answer to that.
7: As previously stated publicly, yes. I think previously with, like, Project Blue Book, yes, but currently I don't speak for the United States government.
8: Okay, thank you. Um, I have a few questions for Mr. Graves. Um, What percentage of UAP sightings, in your belief, go unreported by our pilots?
5: This is an approximation based off of my personal experience speaking with a number of pilots, but I would estimate we're somewhere near 5% reporting, perhaps.
8: So, like, 95% basically don't report seeing UAPs. That's
5: just my personal estimate.
8: Um, in the incident off Virginia Beach, do you believe the Navy took the danger to your aircraft seriously after it was reported? Absolutely. Um, a few questions for Mr. Favor. As an expert naval aviator, have you ever seen an object that looked and moved like the Tic Tac UAP? No. Did the Tic Tac UAP move in such a way that defied the laws of physics?
7: The way we understand them, Yes.
8: Many dismiss UAP reports as classified weapons testing by our own government, but in your experience as a pilot, does our government typically test advanced weapons systems right next to multi-million dollar jets without informing our pilots?
7: No, we have test ranges for that.
8: It took over 15 years for your encounter with the Tic Tac to be declassified. Do you feel there was a good reason to prevent lawmakers from having access to this footage?
7: No, I just think it was ignored when it happened, and it just sat somewhere in a file. never got
8: reported. In a drawer. It happens a lot up here. (laughs) Shocker. Um, Mr. Gresh, a couple of questions for you, too, sir, this morning. Um, What percentage of UAPs do you feel are adequately investigated by the U.S. government, of the 5% that are reported? (laughs) Um,
6: I can only speak for uh, my personal leadership over at NGA. I tried to look at every report that came through that mm -hmm. I could triage, so
8: do you believe that officials at the highest levels of our national security apparatus have unlawfully withheld information from congress and subverted uh, our oversight authority
6: there are certain elected leaders that had more information that i'm not sure what they've shared with certain gang of eight members or et cetera but uh certainly uh, i would not be surprised
8: okay you've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials?
6: Something I can't discuss in public setting.
8: Um, Okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. (laughs) If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? Um, Okay, so, and and you may or may not be able to answer my last question, and maybe we get into a skiff at the next hearing that we have, but who in the government either, what agency, sub-agency, what contractors, Who should be called into the next hearing about UAPs, either in a public setting or even in a private setting? And and you probably can't name names, but what agencies or organizations, contractors, et cetera, do we need to call in to get these questions answered, whether it's about funding, what programs are happening, and what's out there?
6: I can give you a specific cooperative and hostile witness list of specific individuals uh, that were in those.
8: And, And how soon can we get that list?
6: I'm happy to provide that to you after the
8: hearing. Super, thank you, and I yield back.
6: Now we have Mr. Langworthy's here.
8: Thank
0: you there very we... much. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, all of the witnesses for being here today uh, to discuss this very unique topic. Uh, and I'd like to jump right into my questions if you don't mind. Uh, Commander Fravor, can you briefly describe your background?
7: Yeah, I was an enlisted Marine, Naval Academy graduate, Navy, flew for 18 years, Got a master's from University of Houston, uh, and I've worked in the private sector for the last, what now, 19, 16 years, 17 years.
0: I do a lot of defense work. So Really gold-plated credentials. Uh, Commander Fravor, have, uh, we have all seen the floating tic-tac video uh, that you engaged with on uh, November 14, 2004. Can you briefly talk about why you were off the coast of San Diego that day? Yeah, we were at a workup
7: with all the battle groups, so we integrate the ships with the carrier, the air wing with the carrier, and we start working. So we were doing an air-to-air defense to hone not only our skills but those of the USS Princeton when they had been tracking them for two weeks. The problem was that there was never manned aircraft airborne when they were tracking them, and this was the first day, and unfortunately we were the ones airborne and went and saw it. Did this
0: object come up on radar or interfere with your radar or the USS Princeton?
7: The Princeton tracked it. The Nimitz tracked it. The E-2 tracked it. We never saw it on our radars. Our fire control radars never picked it up. The other airplane that took the video did get it on a radar. As soon as it tried to lock it, it jammed the radar, spit the lock, and he, he rapidly switched over to the targeting pod, which you can do in the, uh, in the F-18.
0: From what you saw that day and what you've seen on video, did you see any source of propulsion from the flying object, including on any potential thermal scans from your aircraft?
7: No, there's none. There's no uh, IR plume coming out uh, and Chad, who took the video, went through all the EO, which is black and white TV and the IR modes, and there's no visual signs of propulsion. It's just sitting in space at 20,000
0: feet. In, in your career, have you ever seen a propulsion system that creates no thermal exhaust? No. Can you describe how the aircraft maneuvered?
7: Uh, abruptly, uh, very determinate. It knew exactly what it was doing. It was aware of our presence. And it had acceleration rates. I mean, it went from zero to matching our speed in no time at all.
0: Now, if the fastest plane on Earth was trying to do these maneuvers that you saw, would it be capable of doing that? No, not even close. And just to confirm, this object had no wings, correct? No wings. It looks like that we have a problem here that needs further investigation. <laughs> yes. Uh, in your belief, is this, this flying tic-tac, I mean, is, this, is it capable of being the product of any other nation on the earth?
7: No, I actually, said, like I said earlier, I think it defies current material science and the ability to develop that much propulsion. And I know there's been some physicists have done calculations, which is beyond anything that we have.
0: Is there anything else about the November 14th, 2004 incident that you think is important for this committee to know that you haven't been asked here today?
7: No, I, I, you know, it's, it's been said it's probably the most credible UFO sighting in history based on all the sensors that were tracking it. And then for us to get visual and to go against the naysayers, it, it's something on the screen or whatever. I mean, there's four sets of human eyeballs. We're all very credible. Of the six of us that were involved in the thing, including the video, every one of us is going to do 20-plus years in the military in very responsible positions. So I'd say the world needs to know that.
4: Again, from just a few days ago on Capitol Hill, we will certainly have more on this as maybe further testimony continues down the road. But because we love space, I can tell you, your host, in his humble opinion, we are not alone. When we come back, the president of the United States just a couple of days ago commemorating the 75th anniversary of President Truman's desegregating the United States military. We'll have that next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
2: Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen
4: Tubbs. We continue this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Something important to me because my first documentary film that that I ever had the opportunity to do, I made the the dumb mistake of thinking, "Ah, I can do my first documentary film and then I can also write a book about this same topic. It's called Life, Liberty and Resilience, and it documented the first black American to go back to Iwo Jima. And through the story of Joe Lanier, and he's been featured, uh, rest in peace, he's been featured on the program many times before. Again, the documentary, film, and book, Life, Liberty, and Resilience. I certainly know the book is still available via Amazon. But it, it just shined the light on the fact that it was during World War II that our United States troops were segregated due to their color. Well, it wasn't until late July of 1948, that President Harry Truman desegregated the military. And just a couple of days ago, President Biden was on hand through the Truman Library Institute to mark the 75th anniversary at the Truman Civil Rights
3: Symposium. Summer 1918, First World War War, train moves through the outskirts of Paris. An American Army captain rides alongside an all-white regiment heading to the front lines. The son of a slave state, the grandson of slain owners, Captain Harry S. Truman, looks through his glasses toward the blood-stained soil of the Second Battle of the Marne, that ended just a few months before. It was a pivotal victory that led the vital part of America's, led by the vital part of America's 369th Infantry Regiment, the Harlem Hellfighters. An all-black regiment that spent 191 days on the front, longer than any unit of its size in history. A link in a distinguished line of ancestors and descendants, enslaved and free, risking their lives in every war since our founding for ideals they hadn't fully known on American soil, equality and freedom. A fearless captain on a consecrated battlefield in a segregated military. A snapshot in time of the work of all time to redeem the soul of America, which we're still struggling to do. Representatives Clyburn and Cleaver, the Truman families and leader of the Truman Institute, distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, I speak to you tonight, not from a battlefield, but from another sacred place, the National Archives, home of timeless words that point to our North Star, a light for the dreams and the pains of centuries of enslaved people in America. An idea, once the most simple and the most powerful idea in the history of the world, that we're all created equal, endowed by our creator with certain alien relations that deserve to be treated with equality, not just at the beginning, but throughout our lives. A covenant, a covenant we made with each other, so central to who we are, that we enshrined it in our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Our Constitution, we the people. Our Bill of Rights, with the freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, and more, all safeguarded in this hallowed place. History requires us to acknowledge that we've never fully lived up to the promise of America, captured in the essence of these documents. But our aspirations to be a more perfect union ensure that we never fully walked away from it either just like Army — just like the Army captain who became President of the United States of America walked toward our North Star when he signed executive order that Jim mentioned, 9981, that desegregated the United States Armed Forces on July 26, 1948, 75 years as of yesterday. Harry Truman, born in Missouri, to a family and community that embraced the Confederate sympathies. But savage violence and venom toward black veterans and the power of the civil rights movement changed his mind and his heart. Guided by a prayer, he memorized as a child, and the prayer went like this. "O oh, almighty and everlasting God, creator of heaven, earth, and universe, help me to be, to think, to act what is right, because it is right. That was a prayer he memorized. And history says he spoke to. When the time came, Harry Truman did what the very American thing. He rose to the occasion, and he chose to do right. The American military has been segregated since our founding. Yet hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people of color, men and women, still courageously served with love of country that often didn't love them back. They served in a revolutionary war, declaring independence from a king only to be enslaved by a master. They protected the Union in the Civil War, only to face disunion under Jim Crow. They sacrificed during two world wars, fighting against autocracy, only to be denied the freedom of their own democracy. They're patriots like the Buffalo Soldiers, legends for their valor in combat. The Tuskegee Airmen flying more than 15,000 sorties into battle. Native Americans serving in our military at the highest rate of any demographic and nearly five times the national average. Hispanic Americans, like those of the 65th Infantry Regiment, helping liberate a Nazi concentration camp and protect allied roads and airfields and posts. Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, like the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, liberating Europe. A team that included one of my dearest and closest friends, and a mentor of mine when I got here as a 29-year-old kid, the late Senator Danny Inouye, who served in the Senate with another friend, a great Hawaiian veteran, the late Senator Daniel Akaka. The list goes on, including rank-and-file cooks, custodians, secretaries, mailmen, too often overlooked and forgotten, but made it work. Yet, when these veterans came home, they were still denied equal opportunity in housing, education, jobs, even marriage families held in incarceration camps. Many of them denied the benefits of the GI Bill because the states, the states put up barriers to be able to collect that GI benefit and targeted a racist violence that was callous and all too often casual and common. Let me take you back to 1946. Jim already spoke to this February, South Carolina, Sergeant Isaac Woodard. A decorated black World War II veteran. Saw three years of war in the Pacific. Returning home to finally see his family, he asked the bus driver to stop so he could use the restroom. Instead, the driver called the police. On arrival, the cops pulled him off the bus while he was still in uniform. Beat him so badly, they permanently blinded him. Beat him so badly, they blinded him. And he was in his uniform. I'm still astounded by the cruelty and viciousness. Sergeant Woodard reunited with his family, but he could never look into their eyes again. Five months later, July in Georgia, Army veteran George Dorsey, who spent five years in the Pacific, home with his wife for just 10 months, they were driving with his brother-in-law and sister who was seven months pregnant when a white mob attacked them, pulled them from their car and fired 60 shots, 60. 60 shots at close range, leaving their bodies barely identifiable. My God, how sick. It's unbelievable what racism, fueled by ignorance, can unleash in this country. The next month, August 1946, in response to similar acts of racist terror, a 17-year-old college student wrote a letter to the Atlantic Constitution. Here's what he said. He said, quote, We want and are entitled to the basic rights and opportunities of every American citizen." End of quote. That was a college student at Morehouse College. His name was Martin Luther King, Jr. But a young king wasn't the only person awakened. A president was awakened as well. Harry Truman felt a moral imperative to respond to the mistreatment of black veterans. He heard their calls for a double victory, to win freedom abroad, and at home, he felt the urgency from civil rights leaders like A. Philip Randolph and the NAACP, an unlikely character in the civil rights story of America. Harry Truman set his sights on our North Star. He created the President's Commission on Civil Rights to issued the groundbreaking report entitled, To Secure These Rights. That was the title, To Secure These Rights, condemning segregation and outlawing outlining, I should say, changes in law and policy, protecting the right to vote, prohibiting discrimination in jobs and transportation, desegregating the military, and much more. But as you might guess, the backlash was instant, instant. A friend wrote to him pleading to change course. But President Truman wrote back, quote, I'm asking for equality of opportunity for all human beings. And as long as I stay here, I'm going to continue to fight, end of quote.
4: From the Truman Library Institute at the Truman Civil Rights Symposium, the president just a few days ago commemorating the 75th anniversary of desegregating the United States military. We'll wrap up the show coming up next. And speaking of anniversaries, just a few days ago, the 25th anniversary of the release of one of the most amazing World War II films ever made, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. We give a nod to the incredible film that comes up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com.
2: This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs.
4: We wrap up this week's edition of the program with a look at a 25th anniversary of something I remember going on its first opening day. We don't do a lot of Hollywood stuff here on the program, but when we do, there's certainly a connection. And I feel that it's it's certainly poignant and appropriate to talk about this past week. The 25th anniversary of Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. We take you back.
1: is not open. Yeah, Who's in command yeah, here? Command command. You are, sir. Roger, Harvin. Oh, you York, oh. where we are? Where we're supposed to be, but no one else is. Somebody's where they're supposed to be. Short party. First wave ineffective. We do not hold the beach. Say again. We do not hold the beach up sir. We got the leftovers from Fox Company, Able Company and George Company. the it's our party. It's our party.
4: you remember that I can remember being at the theater in 1998 and I think my breathing was at best incredibly shallow when that opening scene was over you knew that as we commemorate the 25th anniversary of Saving Private Ryan as we wrap up this week's edition you just have to appreciate the artistry and the the magic of cinema in capturing as close to as some World War II veterans have told me as close as Hollywood couldn't get or could have gotten. Remember the actor Barry Pepper? The bell tower scene? Heavy weapon, a, a below. I ain't got a shot.
0: Pincer move, Parker! Target's 8 o'clock low! God, grab me strength.
4: An incredible scene, an incredible film. We look back 25 year anniversary of the release of Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. That was just from earlier this week. Finally, I don't know how anyone had a dry eye in the theater the way the film ends.
3: Ich kann nur den Mann. Und die Schnauze.
2: Tank busters, sir. P-51s. Angels on our shoulders.
0: What, sir?
4: Saving Private Ryan, 25-year anniversary just this past week. It is a pleasure to do this program each and every week, and we hope you've enjoyed this one as we hope you enjoy every single episode of The American Veteran Show. I'm Stephan Tubbs for our producer, Michael Arpaio. Have a safe and healthy week ahead, and remember our troops.
2: The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com